0: morning we are in isaiah chapter 9 this morning and we're going to be reading from verses 2 to 7 so if you turn there with me and stand as we read from god's great word isaiah 9 verse 2 the people ...who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff... For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The north had fallen. To the south, the people along with their king, they shook, Isaiah says, they shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. They knew that a storm was coming. In fact, the shutters were already shaking. Ahaz, the king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom that was still there, he was shut up within the walls of Jerusalem and was terrified. But God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7-4, He said, "Be, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint the temptation was to to make one last ditch effort to turn the tables to increase the odds of successfully resisting this incoming tide of enemy soldiers by forming key political alliances thereby maximizing firepower the sheer size of the invading army it, it was going to take tremendous power to resist. Perhaps, just perhaps, if we can step carefully and, and get some aid from a few choice allies, then just perhaps, maybe we can resist. Maybe we can stand. Maybe we can avoid what, what is kind of looking like certain doom. And that's when God tells Isaiah to command Ahaz not to do anything. Don't do anything, Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Sit. Wait. Don't do anything divinely given order of the day was to stay strong it was to hold your ground it was to trust in the lord and in him alone trust in the lord with all your heart lean not on your own understanding that's what isaiah was essentially told that's what ahaz needed to do again the lord spoke to ahaz ask a sign of the lord in other words, what was being said was God, God saying, look to me, ask me. You need answers, you need help, come to me, come ask me, and I will show you what to do. Let me show you how I'm going to accomplish my plan, even though it looks like all hope is lost. Ahaz, ask me for a sign. But trusting God wasn't part of Ahaz plan. Ahaz was a realist. It made far more sense to, to trust in what could be seen, what could be touched, to rely on soldiers that were draped in armor and wielded razor-sharp swords. It was far more sensible in his mind, I'm going to put my trust in those things rather than wait and pray. To this God that I cannot see, and Ahaz he tries to hide his unbelief by sounding spiritual when he says, "I will not ask. You, you want me to ask God for a sign? I will not ask. I will not put, put the Lord to the test." He was really just covering up his unbelief. This refusal had nothing to do with God being put to the test here. It was all about Ahaz's lack of trust in God to actually come through. The, the, the moment is, is urgent. The need we, we, is, is desperate. we gotta, we got to act now. Do nothing? What are you talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, Isaiah, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Be so much easier to look to boots on the ground. He could have them at at his disposal uh, if he just linked arms with some potential allies. In his mind, that was much more of a sure thing than turning his eyes heavenward and waiting. That was a mistake. Because to say that you have faith in God and not Turn to him in your hour of need. Well, it's to give evidence to the fact that you're nothing but a fraud. You don't have faith in God. The German Old Testament scholar Otto Kaiser put it this way. The only way we can have God is by relying on him and using him. For the only way it is possible to accord God's deity to him, that is to say, God, you are God, is by using him and risking one's life upon God's word by trusting his promises and obeying the revelation of his will. He's essentially saying, You take God off the throne and you say, God, I don't know if you really are God when you refuse to put your trust in Him. But when you do, when the situation is desperate and you say, God, I'm looking to you, you're the only one I've got, you acknowledge you actually do believe in Him. Ahaz refused to rely on God. He refused to risk his life on the promises of God's Word. And so he took his place in a long line of m- monarchical failures. From the house of David, we read last week, second Samuel 7:12, that God had promised David, He promised him this: "When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, I'll establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." God promised that he would raise up a mighty king from the line of David. It was going to be a king whose kingdom would never end. Ahaz was not that man. There would be another. There would be another. When Ahaz refused to seek God by asking for a sign, Isaiah basically then says, You're not going to ask God for a sign? I'm going to give you the sign anyways. He says in verse 14 of chapter 7, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the child that he speaks of in our chapter this morning. Isaiah 9, 6, when he says, For for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What a timely message this was for a nation on the verge of collapse. We are desperate for hope. Where are we going to find help? In the midst of threats, in the midst of warring nations, in the midst of turmoil from within, on the way, at some point in the future, was a king, a deliverer. A chosen and anointed one who was going to make things right forever. It wasn't by the might of great armies that God was going to establish this eternal kingdom. Ahaz, you got it wrong. What were you thinking? It was by God's intervention. It was by the strong power of his son, who would be called Mighty God, that God would accomplish this. But before we pull our hands out of our pockets and start waving fingers at Ahaz, I think we've got to stop and look in the mirror and consider how easy it is for us to look for our salvation in all sorts of different directions other than God. How easy is it for us to look towards finances and health and politics and relationships and entertainment and vacations? I mean, we could go on and we'd look all over the place for what we think that we need. And all the while, God is saying, look to me. Look to me. I'm everything that you need. I made you. I sustain you. Your heart would stop beating if it wasn't for me. The molecules in your body, they would fall apart if it wasn't for the ongoing work of my hand. Acknowledge me for who I am. I am God and I have power to do far more than you ask or think. This morning I'd like to take a few moments to help us see how Mighty God fits in first to the macro context of Scripture. That is to see how it fits into the big story of the entire Bible. And then to look at how it fits in to the Gospels. And then finally, how this mighty God is described as existing for all eternity in glory through the pages of John's Revelation. Let's dive into it talk about the big story, the great storyline of the Bible. It revolves around God establishing his kingdom in the hearts of people that he created. It's about the mighty one who he would send to unite all things. Remember from our study in Ephesians, Ephesians 1? Unite all things in heaven and things on earth. This is the grand theme of the Bible. Let's think about where it all started back in Genesis. God created for himself. Everything that he created was created for his glory and so that his creation might enjoy him. Psalm nineteen one says the heavens declare the glory of God. And some of you have been out in a place like the desert and you've seen the sky and its brilliance. When the moon isn't even there, the stars just pop out and they give glory to God. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 43.7, humanity was also created for my glory, God says. That's why the Westminster Catechism declares that the chief end of man, the most fundamental purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you want to get down to the the nitty-gritty, the core of what we are all about, why we're here, is to give God glory and to enjoy his beauty and majesty. God created all things And he said that they were good. It was all good. Everything that he created was good. And every good that could possibly be given for the good of creation was given. Nothing was held back. Not a single thing. And yet the very first two human beings, they failed to trust God's goodness. Failed to trust God's goodness. God, it seems like you're holding something back from us. God, you told us not to eat this. But we hear if we eat this, then we're going to get some good that you've been holding back. And so instead of choosing to listen and obey and wait and trust, they rebel. They go their own way. And everything begins to fall apart. But God had not given up on his creation. He made a promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He was going to make for himself a people. He was going to give them a place. And he was going to personally provide for them. From Genesis, we turn to Exodus and Deuteronomy. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God raises up a leader to deliver his people. People who were now great in number. He was going to deliver them out of slavery. And then in Mount Sinai, God officially establishes this people as a people he has called out for himself. And he gives them guidelines to follow. This is how I'm going to be faithful to you. This is how you remain faithful to me. And God uses Moses in some amazing ways. Could Moses be the one? Could Moses be the one, the mighty one, that God had planned to bring that was going to unite everything back to him? No, it wasn't Moses. It wasn't Moses because Moses disqualifies himself in, at Meribah God says, speak to the rock. And Moses says, I'm not going to speak. He strikes the rock. And God says, "Nope, Nope, you're not leading these people into the promised land we move into Joshua and Judges and God finally brings him his people into this land that he had promised. You would think that everything was going to be great now, that they had seen God come through on his promises. Man, wouldn't it, it, we pray that sometimes? God, if you just give me this. If I can just get here in life. If I can just make it through high school. If I could just pass this test, if I could just meet the, the guy or the girl of my dreams, if I could just get that job, if I could just have kids, if I could, and we go on and on and on, and these people were finally given, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they're finally led into the promised land, you'd think, oh, finally, they're just going to be experience faithfulness and and. And prosperity and god 's provision and just this perfect relationship now that they 've entered into the promised land, and that is not what we see happen instead we see their their faithfulness to God and their trust in him waver back and forth again and again and again, so much so that they eventually come to the conclusion god we don't e- we don 't even want you to be the main guy over us we want we want a king just like these other nations have and after the first king crashes and burns god raises up a king from a shepherd boy would david be the one could he be this mighty one who is coming that would god would use to to bring about his purposes no david fails too what about Solomon, his son, surely someone as wise as Solomon, that has to, no, wasn't Solomon either. Turning to 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, we see the, the kingdom continue to just ebb and flow back and forth. There's brief seasons of faithfulness, and then there's abysmal failures. We look at all the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And in each of these books, the prophets find themselves in various situations. And yet the message that each of these prophets give is the same. The prophets speaking for God cry out to the people and they say, Turn back! Turn back to God! Come back to Him! You have wandered. Why have you wandered? He's your one and only king. Trust him. Obey him. Hundreds of years pass of silence. And then everything changes. Everything changes when we come to the Gospels, the books of good news, the King. The long-awaited, promised one, the king, has finally arrived. And even though he may not be the king that everyone thought they were looking for, he's everything that God the Father had intended him to be. And he would accomplish every single thing down to the most minute detail of what god had intended him to accomplish he was absolutely successful in fulfilling god's great age-old plan to make a way for rebellious people to come back into the kingdom we see in the book of acts luke's luke now records how the kingdom begins to spread it goes first to the jews then it goes to the Gentiles. And then there's the epistles, all the letters from Romans to Jews and uh, Jude in the New Testament. In the epistles, we read about what this new life in the kingdom looks like. How is this supposed to be lived here on earth? And then we come to Revelation. And John shares his revelation with us that Jesus is the eternal king. He's the eternal king. There is no end to his kingdom. All challengers will be put down once and for all. And Jesus and his people will live together forever. The Bible is made up of 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And put together, they reveal one great message. God's grand design that God is the King. He is the king, and through his creation, though his creation has rebelled, he's actively working to bring them back. No doubt, by the time of Isaiah, the people had seen so much back and forth. They'd seen good leaders and so many bad leaders, promising people rise to power. Maybe maybe this is the one and then to face discouragement over and over again. I'm sure many were tired. Some must have absolutely been discouraged. Some probably just gave up completely the thought of a Messiah ever coming. Some probably thought, you know, even if the Messiah does arrive, is he really going to be strong enough to do what God had promised? Because all these leaders we've seen so far are really disappointing. And that's when Isaiah steps in and says... Unto us a child is born. Notice the phrases in the present tense. Unto us a child is is born so sure is isaiah that this is going to happen so firm is the guarantee of god's promises that he can state it with absolute certainty it's an established reality a son is given even though the child has not yet arrived god's willed it and so he's already been given And just in case you should have doubts as to whether or not he's going to be able to get the job done, Isaiah says, he's going to be called mighty God. There is nothing he can't do. Ahaz, you're trusting in the strong, mighty hands of men. That's a mistake. There's someone infinitely more powerful who's coming, more mighty than you can possibly imagine. Who are you looking to? The mighty God or something or someone else. The world was waiting. It was longing for the arrival of the mighty one who was going to make all things right. And the good news of the gospel is the wait is over. It's over. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, He records Jesus saying, this is in chapter 1, verse 15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There it is, right there in black and white. The time has come. The Son, that promised child mighty god has arrived a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn mark is on a mission to let us know that the long-awaited king has arrived let me just show you from just a few passages here in mark 1 23, he tells of how jesus had power over demons effortlessly jesus commands an unclean spirit to come out he says be silent and come out of him the spirit just leaves it's gone in mark 2 verse 5 he shows us jesus had the power to forgive sins there was a man who was paralyzed the first thing jesus says to him your sins are forgiven this isn't something that a human being should be able to do and the religious leaders of the day they knew that and they said blasphemy you, you're saying you're able to do something that only God can do. Exactly, exactly, because He's the mighty God. No ordinary man was Jesus. In Mark four thirty-seven, Jesus reveals or it reveals Jesus to have power over the elements, the wind and the waves. Obey Him. Amazing, incredible. Who can command such power in Mark 5.39? It's the power over the grave. And there's a young girl who had passed away. And Jesus takes her hand and raises her from death to life. None of this is by accident. None of this is incidental in, in the way Mark wrote his gospel. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that from Genesis 3, all creation has been waiting for the arrival of this mighty one whom God would send to correct human sin. He knows that this person would be king, that he'd be the mighty God. So that's exactly what he draws our attention to. And and notice how in each of these different miraculous powerful examples of the mighty God working here notice the response of people to Jesus Mark 127 they were all amazed so they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even unclean spirits and they obey him in Mark 212 they were all amazed and glorified God. We never saw anything like this. Mark 4.41, They were filled with great fear. Said to one another, "Who, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. 5.42, Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement. Every time the response is the same. It's shock. It's it's awe. They can't believe what they're seeing. How is this possible? And Mark, I think he's saying, yep, see, mighty God. He's right there. The king has come. And if that wasn't enough for Mark to make it clear that the one, the chosen one, had finally arrived, he makes it crystal clear in 827 where he records Jesus says this, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? It's about to get very clear. They told him, well, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You don't get more clear than that. Galatians 4.4 4 says, "But When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, who really were condemned by the law. These lawbreakers stand condemned, but the Son was sent so that we might receive adoption as sons. This Jesus is the king. He's the mighty God who has power over all. And he would have to be all powerful because his mission was to take on humanity's greatest threat, its greatest adversaries, sin and death. Human beings can't overcome these things in and of themselves. And through his death and resurrection, he decisively defeated them both so that by faith, We might share in that victory. Is this your king? Maybe you've heard the words of Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. The Bible says, My king is the king of the Jews, he's the king of Israel, he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder if you know him. He goes on. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can defy his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's internally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled and he's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the one who... He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today, Lockridge asks. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He does He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know Him? His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteousness. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's my king, he says. And I wish I could say it as Lockridge said it, but that resonates. He's the mighty God, the centerpiece of the Bible. He's revealed in the gospel for who he really is. And he's displayed in eternal glory in John's revelation. Listen to the words of Revelation 19, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse the one sitting the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus did absolutely come as a little baby. But I have to tell you, it rubs me so wrong when I hear people flippantly and jokingly just say, Oh, little baby Jesus, that is not who he is now. He is awesome. He is powerful. He is high and lifted up, glorious and eternal, mighty God. To those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, He's captivating. Just captivating. But to everyone else, He will one day be found to be terrifying. The same mighty God who casts out demons, who commanded the winds and the waves, who healed the sick, who forgave sins, who defeated sin and the grave, is the same one who will crush Satan and deliver all who follow him to an eternity in hell. Isaiah's words they're for people like you and me, they're for people who are tired people who are frustrated, people who are <laughs> impatient, disillusioned. It's, it's also for those whose eyes have been bombarded by the cares of this world, have had their focus diverted away from God's great plan. It's for people who are tempted to look at what's practical and what's tangible, what they can see and what they can feel and what works rather than to wait, pray, and trust Almighty God. It's for people who need to be reminded that God is faithful, so faithful. He does not forget, and He will absolutely come through on His promises. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the mighty God, who has the power to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord, for your, your promise of this mighty, mighty God. Lord, you have not left us to our own undoing. But in your great love, you sent Jesus Christ, something that you planned to do even before you created. That astonishes me. And we are on the other side of his arrival. He has come, and he has come with authority and power in his defeated sin in the grave, Lord. And it is in him that we trust. Help us to trust him more. We have all sorts of things that come into our lives each and every day, perhaps today, perhaps yesterday, perhaps this month, perhaps tomorrow, things that will tempt us to take our eyes off of you, to look first to other solutions. But Lord, help us, help us to look only to you, help us to look first to you and help us to rely on you. Because you are our only hope. And you are the only true source of good and what we really need. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time we've had in your word to be encouraged and to be reminded once again of your faithfulness to us and our need for you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.